reading is taken from Exodus chapter 33, and reading from verse 7 to 23. You can find it on page 92 of the Church Bible. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the Tent of Meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the Tent of Meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances of their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance, while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face, as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young assistant Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favour with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so that I may know you and continue to find favour with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. And Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand, and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's, um, let's pray before we go into this passage. Lord, may the words that I speak and the thoughts of all our hearts be now and always acceptable to you. Speak through me, and may my words be of you and for you. I ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So, we're looking at Exodus 33. There's no PowerPoint, so you can turn off that. Um, and uh, this, is, this is continuing on uh, in the passages that we've had before. In Exodus, God has first distinguished his people from the Egyptians in chapters 1 to 18, and then he distinguishes his people from all other peoples in chapters 19 to 40. So in chapters 1 to 4, it describes the circumstances of Moses' birth and calling. 
chapters 5 to 15, chronicle Moses' confrontation with Pharaoh, the plagues and the exodus itself. Chapters 16 to 18 tell about the three-month journey to Mount Sinai. And in chapter 8, God promises Pharaoh that he'll make a distinction between my people and your people. For example, in, uh, it says it in 8.23, for example, in 9.4, 9.6, and even in the great and final plague on the firstborn in 11.7, then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And then commands Moses to memorialize that in uh, chapter 12, verse 26 to 27. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law in chapter 18, recognizes that. Then he moves on to distinguishing his people from all the other people of the earth. So chapters 19 to 23 detail the initial covenant making at Mount Sinai when the Ten Commandments are given. Chapters 24 to, 20, to 31 are about Moses' 40 days on Mount Sinai and the detailed instructions that God gives him about the tabernacle. And remember how the tabernacle is going to dwell in the center of the people. It's going to be the focus of what they're looking at. It's the very visible presence of God in the midst of his people. And then chapter 32, Moses comes down from the mountain with the new tablets and he encounters a riot going on, an orgy going on, the golden calf incident. Horrible, horrible incident. And then chapters 33 and 34 present the aftermath of that incident and the renewal of the covenant before chapters 35 to 40 conclude with the people's now, punctilious obedience to God's instructions as they build the tabernacle. So, um, Motya describes in, uh, in, in chapters 32 and 34 a, a pattern that we see. So, in 32 verses 1 to 6, Moses doubts. And then in 34, 29 to 35, Moses is validated. And so it goes in, in each case. Um, in 32, 7 to 14, the covenant is under threat. Whereas in 34, 4b to 28, the covenant is renewed. In 32, 15 to 19, we have the broken tablets. Whereas in 34, 1 to 4, we have the replacement tablets. In, uh, in 32, 20 to 24, we have the false security where they're longing for the visible. And then in 33, 20, 12 to, to 23, we have the true security, not the visible, but the audible. In 32, 25 to 29, we have the practical devotion, where in three, uh, 33, 7 to 11, we have the spiritual devotion. And then the chiasmic uh, part ends uh, uh, in, in chapter 32, beginning of chapter 33, with the angel leading and sin faced in 32, 30 to 45, and the angel expelling and sin acknowledged in 33, 1 to 6. So that's just the, the where we are in that passage. And we're, we're going to be looking at uh, chapter 33, verses 7 to 23. So we've just had the golden calf. The, the sin has been incredible in, in Egypt, uh, in Israel. Um, uh, it's been more of Egypt, to be honest. And the Levites have been ordained now by God in, in going through the, to the, uh, to the camp with their swords. And so, at the beginning of chapter 33, we have, this, um, we have this case of God going to his people, I don't want to spend time with you. You go up to Egypt, and I, sorry, you go up to the promised land, 
You go up to the promised land and I will send an angel to you. Uh, this is verse 2 of uh, chapter 33. I'll send an angel to go in front of you and he'll drive out the, the Canaanites and everyone else. But I'm not going to go with you because if I go with you, I might destroy you. And so the people are now sort of very repentant. Um, they're acknowledging their guilt. Uh, there's been um, literally the sword and plagues. They've experienced God's wrath against them for the first time as opposed to against others. And that's where we are at the beginning of, of our passage. And so just before chapter 32, we've had that very long description of, of how the tabernacle is to be built, of how each part will be, uh, will be completed. And then the golden calf, the tablet's broken. And so what's the first thing we find in here? Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp, some distance away. God has told Moses to build this tabernacle in the very middle of the camp. That it's going to be such a thing that, that, that the nations have not seen before. In a traveling camp that, that you have this, uh, this, this visible presence of God. The center of everything. The whole of the camp centered around it. Take a tent, pitch it outside the camp some distance away. Rather than God being in, in with his people, now, to meet with God, you have to separate yourself from this people. You have to separate yourself and go out of the camp to meet with God. The camp that God has envisioned is having himself at the very centre. And so we have, anyone inquiring the Lord will go to the tent meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tent. Now, of course, this has had one good benefit for them, in that now they can see Moses whenever he's going out to pray. It's a very visible thing. He walks past their tents. He goes out to some distance to, the, to this tent of meeting. And all the people, therefore, see him. And in their new contrite form... They stand, first of all, at the uh, entrances of their tent. And as he goes in, a visible sign of God comes down. It isn't the tent of meeting because Moses says, I've set up this tent and I'm going to meet with God there. It's the tent of meeting because God meets with Moses there. And the pillar of cloud which God puts outside is the flag of royalty, the admiral's standard, that God is there. And when people are going up to the, to the tent to inquire, they're either going, we're not actually told when they're going, but the implication is that they don't do it when Moses is there. There's no pillar of cloud that appears for them. Yet Joshua, we're told later on, is there the, the entire time. So they, they bring their queries presumably to Joshua, who then passes them on to Moses to speak to the Lord. There's a separation between God and his people. And so the first thing that Moses does is he goes to this tent. He goes into the tent and the pillar of cloud comes down, would stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. And here we have this vision of, of Moses speaking with the pillar. And that's, that's how we see it elsewhere as well. If you, look at, um, if you look at Numbers 12, verse 8, for example, uh, it's on page 148. Um, 
Miriam and Aaron are opposing Moses, and he speaks about how um, the Lord speaks to him. But this is, this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly, and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. The pillar of cloud comes down again and again, and uh, uh, elsewhere, for example, in Deuteronomy 31. Uh, it's on page uh, 209. Um, then the Lord appeared at the tent in a pillar of cloud, and the cloud stood over the entrance to the tent. And the Lord said to Moses, and it, it goes on. And there are were, there were many other occasions where we can find this. But of course, before this, the pillar of cloud has gone before Israel, leading them out of Egypt. It's been the visible sign of God's presence, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. So as they are seeking God's face, Moses now is, seek, is meeting with God face to face. Verse 11, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. So if I, the first question we ask is, why was the tent of meeting outside the camp? Because of the separation of God from his people. But also, in order that people separated themselves from themselves in order to go to God. Moses, when he goes out to pray, has to separate himself from the people. And that effect on the people is to cause them, first of all, to stand, to notice and to, to, to acknowledge this, and to worship. Verse, uh, verse, verse, uh, verse 10. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to their tent. So this has now caused Israel to come back to God. We're starting to see the, the restoration of Israel after the horrific uh, golden calf incident. And Joshua is staying here, looking after the tent, presumably guarding it against, uh, against intrusion. But also, Joshua is now learning to spend time dwelling in God's presence. Um, and when, when Moses says, whom will you send with me? Actually, it's Joshua who ends up going into the promised land, the one who's been ministering with Moses at this point. So first of all, we have Moses seeking God face to face. And then Moses says to God, you've been telling me to lead these people in verses 1 to 6, uh, sorry, verses 1 to 7. So verses 1 to 6, I was right the first time. In verses 1 to 6, God has told Moses to lead these people up into the, into the promised land. The angel of the Lord will go with them. And so Moses says, you've been telling me to lead these people, but you have not let me know who you will send with me. Kind of has. He said, I'm going to send an angel with you. But he, Moses says, this isn't good enough, God. What is it about us that's special if it's not you? What is it that distinguishes us from the other peoples if we don't have you with us? All that stuff you did before, God, about distinguishing yourself from the other gods, showing your sovereignty, showing how powerful you are against all the gods of Egypt. I mean, you didn't pick some backwater nation. 
The Israelites weren't enslaved in, in, by a, a, a peaceable tribe uh, where they could easily escape. They were enslaved by one of the largest military powers of the, wor- of the known world. They were enslaved by an established culture. It's one of the reasons why um, Israel was able to grow as it did, because they, were, because they were objectionable to the Egyptians, and so they were able to be separated from them. But it's still, it's one of the, one of the, the known powers that God acts against and distinguishes his people from Pharaoh's people. And he says, I've hardened Pharaoh's heart in order that I will show my glory in this. But God, what's the point if you're not going to distinguish yourself with us anymore? He goes on in, um, uh, in verse 15. We'll come back to the other bit in a second. If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and, your peop- and with your people unless you go with us? Now, by that point, God's actually already said he's going to go with them. Uh, but... Nonetheless, Moses is repeating this point because, because he, wants to, he wants to make clear why it is that he wants God there. He wants to know God better. Lead these people, he says in verse 12. But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. Again, Moses reminds God of something that God presumably knows. God hasn't forgotten his people. The promise is still there. He said to Moses, lead them up into the promised land. I'll send an angel. The angel will get rid of all the peoples in front of you. But that's not good enough. Because if we've just got some special angel fighting for us, but actually don't have the presence of God, what is it that distinguishes us? What is it that makes us different from the peoples around us? And for us, what is it that distinguishes us from those around us? We're told to be in the world, but not of the world. How do people tell that we're different? How do people tell that what we're doing isn't just a a sort of general morality, but is motivated by a relationship with the living God. An investment in the sonship. That we are slaves, as Dave said earlier on this morning. That we are slaves of Jesus. Is that what people would see if they look at your life? That you're a slave of Jesus? The property of Jesus? That, that, that his will is the, the, the one thing you can do in your life. Anyway, so, he reminds God that this nation is his people. God's already said, by the way, remember, in, uh, whilst, whilst, uh, whilst t- telling Moses about the people sinning, um, don't worry about it, Moses, I'll destroy them, and I'll build a nation out of you. And, God, and Moses has interceded, so God's not destroyed this people. Then Moses comes down, breaks the tablets, and the people are contrite after... Um, experiencing some of God's wrath. And the Lord says in, um, in verse 14, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. But actually the, the translation of that is more, my face will go with you. 
The literal translation is my face, though it's, it's actually hard to find a Bible translation that says that. Um, Dume Reims, I think, is one of the few. Jung's literal used to say it, but um, apparently doesn't now. <laughs> I think part of the reason is because we don't see face in that way. We, we have lots of different ways in which we use the term face, but we don't see it in terms of people's presence. And I spoke in a previous sermon about how Hebrew has, um, has so, so many meanings on one word. And so that makes it a bit difficult sometimes for us to translate things. And so the same word can mean lots of different things depending on the context. And so the correct translation probably is presence. My presence will go with you. But it's his face he actually says. My face will go with you. So first of all, we have Moses meeting face to face with God. And then we have God's face going before them, going with them. I will distinguish my people from other peoples, from the peoples, the other peoples of the earth, because my face will be with them. And will give you rest. Isn't that a blessing? He won't just go with them, but he'll give them rest. They're going to come to the promised land, and actually we know the history. We know that the, that the promised land is not going to be quite as restful as it might have been for them because they don't do what God says and so they end up being left with some thorns in the side and then we have all the judges where, where it's a, a, a continual cycle of, of Israel not doing what they're supposed to do and then crying out to God for a saviour and God sends one and then 40 years later they go back into their ways and 40 years after that they cry out again and, and so on and so forth. But God's re- promise of rest is real and if we're living in God's rest... It will, it will be real for us as well. We might not experience it now, but the promised rest is real and coming. Anyway, in verse 15, God, uh, Moses says to him, If your face is, your face, your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? If God's face doesn't go with us, what distinguishes us? And so Moses uh, Moses is again told by the Lord, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I'm pleased with you, and I know you by name. Now Moses actually said that earlier on. He said um, uh, in verse 12, um, you've said I know you by name. I don't think there's an actual verse anywhere else earlier in the Bible that says I know you by name, apart from in in, in chapter 3, when Moses is called by the Lord, when he reveals his own name, when he says, Moses, Moses, from the burning bush. But the the name, as we spoke about in Exodus 3, means more than just the naming of the person, but the character of the person. The Shem is the name, the character. God says to Moses, I know you by name. I know you by character as well. I'm pleased with you because you're doing what I've asked you to do. And then in verse 18, in, in, in this translation, we have this rather abrupt, now show me your glory. <laughs> um, some of the other translations um, make it a little bit more polite. Uh, the ESV, for example, has, um, please show me your glory. Um, others have, um, I beseech you to show me your glory, uh, for example. So it's, it's not necessarily quite as abrupt as it, uh, as it first appears here. But, but secondly, it's not that... 
It's not that Moses is interested in this for his own edification. Remember, the covenant relationship between God and his people is being enacted with Moses as sort of the linchpin. So when Moses is seeing the glory of God, he is seeing it on behalf of the whole of Israel. And you could say that Moses has seen lots of God's glory before. I mean, you know, there was the burning bush, then there was all the miracles, then there was uh, the plagues and the things that went on from that. Then there was the whole thing of, uh, of Pharaoh's army being drowned in the sea. There was the water coming out. He's seen pillars of fire, pillars of smoke. He's spoken with God face to face. He's met with God on Mount Sinai. And yet Moses says to God, please show me your glory. So what is it that Moses is trying to do here? Well, actually, it goes back to that bit which he said in verse 13. Teach me your ways that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Moses is trying to gain a greater knowledge of God. Now, it may be that he's not entirely aware of what he's asked for here. Because who can look on the face of God and live, as God later says? It may be one of these things a bit like Peter, when he says to, um, to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, um, Oh, oh, isn't this great, Jesus? Let's, uh, let's set up three tents here. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. We'll, we'll stay here. Actually, ironically, that's possibly when Moses sees the face of God and the full glory of God in that vision. Because the glory of God is put down on Jesus then. And he sees that glory transfigured it's not just a vision of Moses, we're told it is actually Moses. But there we go, it's a bit of an aside. Now show me your glory, Moses says. And the Lord says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. The goodness of God, as opposed to the sort of yin-yang idea that, that, that evil and goodness must be, uh, must be balanced. There isn't any evil in God. There isn't any, any need for God to be balanced in that sense. He is completely unbalanced. But in a good way. Because he is nothing but good. And that's why he can't tolerate our intolerable sin. Because his goodness is too great to be able to put up with whether it's the petty sins that we think aren't important or the or the ones which we think are atrocious. The goodness of God is, is too good for that. But he says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. We go back again to Exodus 3 and to Exodus 15, where he's saying, my name, my character, will be the thing which defines me, the thing which allows you to see me, to see my face. And then he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Elsewhere, that's, um, that's put as, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And of course, that's picked up in Romans 9, verse 15, when Paul speaks about how God is sovereign. And he says, literally in that translation, I, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. 
But actually, if we go back to God's name, uh, if you remember, it was there were five different things that we brought out of the I am who I am. I am who I am. Ea, Asha, Ea. I will exist because I will exist. I exist because I exist. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I am that which exists. And now God adds a new thing to his name. I will be gracious to who I will be gracious. I will be merciful to who I will be merciful. I will be to who I will be. My name will be proclaimed. And that, after all, is actually the point of all creation. That God's name will be glorified. We can see the, the glory of God in, in many ways throughout our universe. But it is that for the glory of God to be proclaimed that God has created us, that we have our purpose. And he goes on and says, but you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live, which kind of seems to contradict the part where it says he's been speaking face to face with Moses and uh, elsewhere in Deuteronomy 34 where it says, um, was there ever a man like Moses whom God spoke to face to face? But this shows that actually God is, is not showing his full glory to Moses when he speaks face to face. He's meeting him in a different way, in a burning bush, in a pillar of cloud. And now God says, I will show you my glory, but it is too marvelous for you. You cannot, in your present form, see it and live. So I'm going to put you in this cleft of the rock, and I'll cover you with my hand as I walk past, and then you're going to see the glory, and I'll lift my hand away as I've walked past. You'll, you'll see my back, but not my face. Now, I'm not sure about you, but you, you possibly don't imagine God having a back and a face and hands in quite the same way that he's using this language here. He's using figurative language, but what he's trying to say is that his glory is too massive, too, too good for Moses. And the same light that illuminates a room and causes you to be able to see what, you're, what it is you're doing burns your eyes when you get up in the middle of the night and you flick it on you. God's glory is too much. So instead, he shows the afterglow of his glory. And that, that is enough for Moses to see the full extent of his glory, of his goodness. Later on, after, after he's got the new tablets, Moses will, will then have his face shining, his countenance, every time he goes and sees God. And he has to wear a veil and all the other things because he's a visible symbol of God's presence in the same way that the pillar of cloud has been. The tent of meeting, which was outside the, the camp, will become the tabernacle. A different tent, but will, he'll be in the tabernacle. And when, in chapter 40, God comes to rest upon the tabernacle, he does that with the pillar of cloud. He demonstrates his presence again in the middle of Israel. We see Moses, first of all, meeting face to face with God. But God will send his face ahead of them, with them. 
that God will turn his face to them. And then that God's face is too glorious for us to behold and that we must be hidden from it. Yet in Psalm 51, for example, um, it talks about asking God to turn his face away from our sin, to hide our sin from his face, because it, it must be distressing for God to look upon our sin. That's why Jesus came, that we might have a man with a face. There was a little girl who said that that's... Um, that uh, that G what did Jesus do by coming to earth? It was to put a face on God. Because a face, it establishes identity, it expresses emotion, it exhibits character, and it indicates direction. We are told that the face of God will shine upon us and that it will be a blessing to us. But the face itself is too glorious until we are in a resurrection body. So let's finish with that portion of Numbers. Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to 27 on page 141. Tell Aaron and his sons, the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. So they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them, says the Lord. Because his name is glorious, he will turn his face to us. Let's try and live that out in our lives. Let's try and ensure that people can distinguish between us and others, and that when they look in our face, they see God shining out. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your promises. We thank you that um, you do turn your face to us, and that you sent your Son to die for us, that we might live. And Lord, we look forward to the day when one day we can stand in your presence, and we can see your face, the face of our Father, without it destroying us because you have cleansed us of all sin and brought us into your presence, not because we deserve it, but because you are gracious to those who you are gracious and have mercy on those who have mercy. And we thank you, Lord, that you've chosen us. Amen.